0: Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrathbearing Trees Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Bonnenberger. And today we're joined by Brett Charles DeVereau, PhD, History, Visiting Lecturer at UNC Chapel Hills History Department, Gamer, Public, Intellectual, I think a presence on Twitter qualifies one for this category, and author of A Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry, one of the most delightful and entertaining pop culture history publications available. Brett, Thanks for joining
1: us. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: When did you start working on a collection of unmitigated pedantry and how did it evolve to its present form?
1: So I started the blog, a collection of unmitigated pedantry um, in the, I want to say, summer of 2019. And it it started out as just a sort of outlet for um, my thoughts. I was going on the academic job market. I was um, you know, working on articles and that sort of thing to try and really prepare for that. And you, you end up with all sorts of unrelated thoughts that don't really fit in that kind of, in that kind of space. And so um, I started this up. And I started with um, what was sort of in the zeitgeist at the time which is you were just coming off of the catastrophic failure of the last season of Game of Thrones. And (laughs) as someone who does pre-modern history, um, like my core is the study of the Romans. Um, In my teaching, I certainly stretch into the Middle Ages. I really wanted to comment on the sort of image of the historical past that Game of Thrones was capitalizing on. And then I stretched also into the Lord of the Rings, which I love, I grew up with, um and also there like what is the historical past that this text is is capitalizing on how does it how does it relate in what ways is it are they expressing things that are true about the past in what ways are they expressing things that are untrue about the past um, you know for the most part game of thrones came in for a beating on that representing i think more popular misconceptions about the past than actual realities about the past There's a bit more of the actual past in The Lord of the Rings. No great surprise J.R.R. Tolkien was a scholar of old English literature, uh, where where his books perhaps do not represent the historical processes. They represent the literary tropes of historical eras. Um, There's a whole lot of Beowulf, ninth century old English poem in The The Lord of the Rings.
0: And also somewhat relevantly to this podcast, perhaps a a more uh, contemporary war to Tolkien in reflected in the Lord of the Rings, given his experiences in World War
1: One. And what I ended up doing with the Lord of the Rings is actually two long series of articles, using the Lord of the Rings, particularly the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Siege of Gondor, both as an opportunity to discuss the books and and the films and their vision of history, also as an opportunity to essentially run as a military history 101 course, uh, introducing the basic concepts and frames of thinking that you would you would get in one of those courses through a fictional set of battles that the reader might be familiar with. And one of the things that I do talk about is I, I think the section title, I'm really pl- proud of, of the pun, is the Psalm of Gondor. I am inordinately proud of my puns, as anyone who reads the <laughs> blog will know. But and this was one of the major points that where the Siege of Gondor most notably diverges from medieval siege practice, it was really striking how the imagery was drawn almost directly from Tolkien's experience in the First World War, how it echoes other World War I literature, the, zigz- the advancing zigzag trenches of the enemy, the feeling of pressure before the beginning of an offensive, the role of the artillery barrage in the offensive before it comes This is all straight out of Tolkien's own experiences in war. And I think it matters for The Lord of the Rings and for its narrative that Tolkien is not unfamiliar with this. He has been to war. It shows up in ways where he seems, I think, to show an understanding of what individuals in war might be thinking or feeling that is that is clear and more on target. The line that the enemy had a weapon quicker than hunger, which was despair, right, is just a sort of on target. It shows up in little things, like Tolkien has an intuitive grasp of how fast armies move, um, that you can sit down. I don't think Tolkien ever sat down and calculated out the marching tables for his armies. But in these posts, I do it. How fast do they need to move on what terrain and so on? And with a few sort of heroic exceptions where Aragorn is moving at incredible speed, for the most part, Tolkien's armies move within the bounds of how fast historical armies moved. No surprise, he was a lieutenant in the First World War. He was marching men around. He knew how fast they went. And so he has an intuitive grasp of these sorts of things, which combined with his knowledge of old English literature and medieval culture uh, made analyzing The Lord of the Rings, a really sort of rich vein to mine for these concepts, a way to bring them out in ways that were were really interesting.
0: That really jumps out from the blog, both your own care about the details of these stories, but also the ways in which a person whose first exposure to history, the thing that kindles their, their love of history, is perhaps in this day and age, a television show or a movie or a representation of a thing. I actually hadn't gotten, I hadn't, I haven't gone back and read the Game of Thrones uh, critique of yours. So I'm interested to hear uh, a little bit more about that. Can you say a little bit more about what your thoughts of that series are? I have read all of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings posts and can recommend them enthusiastically.
1: Yeah. My critique came in two big parts that were separated by about two years of my writing. Um, so the first part was on the societies of, of Westeros proper, which are meant to sort of resemble medieval Europe or, or more nearly medieval England. And what I really focused on was the idea, and I had heard this expressed by other people, I think people recognize that one of the major themes of the books especially, the show fumbles this theme to a degree, but is the uncontrollable violence of the society and the way that that violence is tearing it apart that the values and structures of this society lead inevitably to the kind of violence we see. It is extremely damaging and is eventually going to consume everyone and everything. What I felt was interesting is that as you look at the society that, that Martin has, has constructed, in some ways it does resemble medieval societies. In other ways, He has removed institutions and systematically he's removed the institutions in the actual Middle Ages that functioned as a checks on the escalation of violence. Um, He has weakened the church to a considerable degree um, in its formulation the actual medieval church was often quite concerned with the levels of violence in medieval Europe and attempting to restrain them. Never fully successful, mind you. The Middle Ages were a violent time, but it was. You have the truce of God and peace of God movements attempting to regulate warfare. Likewise, the bonds of honor and fealty between lords and vassals often enforced a degree of honorable behavior, not because people in the past were more honest than we are, but because the real politique of maintaining kingdoms based on personal relationships demanded that you keep your word, because your word was what enabled you to raise troops, it enabled you to get support from your fellow nobles, it was what made you effective. Lots of comical villain betrayals would actually diminish your own power because your own vassals wouldn't know if they could trust you. And I came away with, in particular, that I thought that Martin in some ways was more influenced by, if you listen to him talk about European history, he has a lot of very sort of colorful War of the Roses era events on his mind, and pointing out that these aren't in the Middle Ages. These are in the early modern period. These are off the back end of the Middle Ages. In the early days of the early modern period, gunpowder is beginning to emerge. The church has been massively weakened in many cases by the Protestant Reformation. When we start to see things like the 30 Years War, the 80 Years War, and so on, where he's drawing a lot of his inspiration, it's either in the very closing days of the Middle Ages or the very beginning of the early modern period, And the early modern period is a period typified by out-of-control violence. The Thirty Years' War is incredibly destructive, probably kills a third of everybody in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Spectacularly destructive, in part because the checks on the escalation of violence that were culturally embedded in the Middle Ages have failed, and in part because increasing state power, the very fact that European states are getting larger and more capable, better bureaucracies, better taxes, means they can wield more violence, recruit more soldiers, bigger armies that are even more destructive. And this produces a real spike in violence moving into the early modern period. And I came away with the conclusion that I thought that the Game of Thrones and and the Song of Ice and Fire book series it's based on, often, and of course the books aren't done, so Martin may have a plan for this, but the show certainly. Often I found it seemed like viewers came away saying, ah, this society is very violent. But that's a product of how medieval it is. And certainly, we don't have these problems anymore. And I would correct them. The society is very violent in the ways that it's modern. That this isn't a problem we've put behind us. This is a problem we invented about 500 years ago and continue to live with. Um, you know, We still live in the Game of Thrones. It, it isn't confined to the past. The second critique I had, which was a lot sharper, was of how Martin constructed the Dothraki. Martin is on record as saying that the Dothraki, that he had built them out of an amalgam of U.S. Great Plains uh, Native Americans and Eurasian steppe peoples, horse cultures, with, as he put it, and I quote, a dash of pure fantasy. And what I, I felt needed to be demonstrated, um, there is almost nothing of either Native American plains culture or steppe nomadic culture in the Dothraki they're pure fantasy they're practically orcs in terms of their society is entirely based on violence um, they have no clear subsistence system you know they're just extremely violent they're all they're just continuously murdering each other and then i thought frankly saying that these societies were based off of either native americans or steppe nomads was Something of a slander, not in the legal sense, in the general sense. Especially given that these are two cultural groups that still find themselves very much on the unpleasant business end of states. The you know conditions of Native Americans in the United States um, on reservations are often very bad. You know poverty and and other negative conditions. And likewise, many Mongolians right now, particularly in the parts of Mo- of ethnic Mongolia that are in China, um, find themselves on the business end of Han Chinese governance that is very unpleasant. Likewise, of course, the related Uyghur people painting these people through their sort of fantasy stand-in as violent, thoughtless barbarians, none of whom get much characterization beyond all the murders they do, I thought was deeply irresponsible. Now, I mean, I should say in, in Martin's defense, presumably if the next book ever comes out, Lord knows if it will, we're going to be popping back to Daenerys. And so there is sort of an opportunity here, I think, to somewhat salvage the Dothraki as they come back into the spotlight, really for the first time properly since the first book. So we'll see where that goes. But as it stands now, I found that depiction really troubling. And again, it reinforces a set of stereotypes that the society already has about these savage, and it is very visual medium, but people, I'm making air quotes, savage people, that is is very unfortunate. And so I wanted to push back against that quite strongly and did so at some length. It was also an opportunity, frankly, to talk about historic cultures, both in the Americas and in the Eurasian steppe, that just don't get much attention in popular culture. Uh, Certainly not uh, attention in any kind of depth. Uh, You know, when they do show up, they're the bad guys, they're the villains, either chasing the stagecoach or they're the bad guys in Mulan.
0: Having listened to um, Patrick Wyman's excellent podcast, Fall of Rome and Tides of History, uh, I read, um, I think it's called The Fall of the Roman Empire by Peter Heather, which came out in the 1990s. And it talks a bit about how the, what the Romans describe as barbarians were influenced by Rome and how, and really it's, it's a lot about how the histories that we have of Rome that constitute much of popular history about Rome are essentially just Roman propaganda. It's just oh, yeah. what Rome happened to be writing about stuff, and that's what most people know of Rome. And if, we, if we're thinking about the steppe people, you know, anybody who is on horseback and probably east of the Carpathian Mountains uh, to a certain extent, you know, I think that affects uh, how people think even today about, uh, about Eastern Europeans. It's all sort of part of a place where people ride horses and wear furs and are racist and anti-Semitic going all the way from, again, the the, Dnieper, the Dnipro River, all the way out to uh, probably the, um, the Siberian coastline. And that's the Dothraki too. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that, um, you know, something that he's read in a very, very distant way that was written by uh, a, a Roman prelate somewhere who was trying to explain in tangible terms that was accepted, that wouldn't get his head cut off by the emperor, why something had just gone awfully wrong.
1: Awfully wrong. And, and uh, you know, nomadic peoples face this problem everywhere. Writing in the pre-modern world, writing is a creature of cities. Um, cities famously are not very movable, and nomads generally don't have them. Obligatory crash course joke, unless you are the Mongols who have Karakorum. And so uh, step nomads, any kind of nomadic group, they don't generally write about themselves. Themselves. Again, unless you are the Mongols. So we only ever get their story as told from outside, from their enemies and victims. Because of the different subsistence systems, these nomads are generally herders, they're shepherds, and the settled peoples are generally farmers. Those subsistence systems produce conflict whenever you put them next to each other. To the farmer, the herdsmen's pastures look like farmable land that is inexplicably empty. When he attempts to move into that land, because the herdsman is in his summer pastures or his winter pastures, he is depleting the grass stock the herdsman needs to survive. On the flip side, the herdsman looks down from his land, which is often quite marginal. It's not the good land. The farmers have the good land. And the farmers have all the good land and they have all the good stuff. If you want to, well, you could take that stuff. You have all these horses and bows. And so you could raid that farmer and take his stuff, or you could trade with him if he's strong, if he's well-defended. And so these two patterns of subsistence create friction and conflict everywhere in situations where the herders are completely enclosed by farmers. Um, So you want to talk about, in in my area, I would talk about this as sort of the Apennine Mountains that run up and down the center of of Italy in the Roman period. The guys up on on, on the Apennines And on their foothills, they're raising sheep and goats. That's not great farmland. But they're completely enclosed by farmers all around them. They tend to be politically dominated by the more numerous farmers, get the raw end of the political deal. It sucks. But for an area like the steppe, which is massive and it cannot be dominated, at least until the advent of railroads, by its settled neighbors, um, you get this sort of pretty continual friction between these two subsistence systems and only one of these subsistence systems writes about it. So naturally the farmer is noble and peaceful and good, and the herdsman is violent and evil and barbaric. Because again, the herdsmen don't write to us unless you are the Mongols.
0: I, this seems like a, a, as good of a place of any to, uh, to shift gears a little bit and talk about the other focus of a coup. Is, is that intentionally? <laughs> Did yes. you start with a coup yes. or, okay, the blog, which is video games, mm-hmm. uh, especially right now, strategy video games. You're writing about uh, Victoria 2, which I haven't played, and Europa Universalis 4. I've also mm-hmm. played Hearts of Iron. You're, you're, you're talking quite a bit about Paradox Entertainment and the ty- a certain type of strategy game that's, that's very detailed, but also pretty accessible. And the kind of trade-offs that one ends up making as a video game designer and the type of history That you end up telling as a result of that. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I've been playing Paradox games for a long time. I play a lot of computer games. Um, I have a Dark Souls joke in my Twitter profile. As one does, I'm required to inform everyone by the laws of gods and men that I have, in fact, beaten Dark Souls. I thought that, especially compared to some of the other games on the market, Paradox games were a particularly rich vein to mine to talk about the presentation of history You have some games that utilize history in a very sort of surface way, Um, your civilization titles, your total wars, um, Assassin's Creed. You know, the developers for Assassin's Creed are extremely concerned that the buildings look right and not very concerned that the social systems are correct. The Paradox games, because they're intended very much as historical simulations, rather than simply using history as a backdrop for some game mechanics, they really want that simulation of history that means they have to come to the game with a theory of history. They have to have a sense of what history they're simulating, what historical processes are important in this period, and then how they frame the game around those processes it creates a much more interesting topic to discuss, a much more interesting thing to approach. And of course, they're very popular. I think when I started playing Paradox games uh, back when I started with Hearts of Iron 2, they were extraordinarily niche and no one knew about them. But really with, I guess, Crusader Kings 2 is the big breakout success. These are now very popular strategy games that get a lot of players. For a lot of those players, this is going to be their first real encounter with some of these historical contexts. Uh, It's funny, I've been playing these games forever. What actually brought me to start writing about them was seeing on Twitter another history professor, uh, an early modernist, who went on Twitter to say, my students are coming into my class and they're telling me they are taking my class because they've played this game Europa Universalis 4. I'm not a gamer. I don't play this game. And he basically asked, what should I know about how this is going to condition them? And I produced a brief Twitter thread and I thought about this is something that I could discuss at a lot more length because there really are things to talk about here uh, both in ways that EU4 really pulls off its historical vision and also in ways that it stumbles. That you, you know, if you're a teacher, you certainly would want to be aware that students are going to have some ideas.
0: I thought that you did a terrific job of orienting casual readers to that by talking a little bit, I think at first in, in one of the earlier blog posts, I, I, I want to say it's one of the earlier ones, about how when the game starts, it zooms in on Europe. Mm hmm. But you can pick, this is like, uh, so, so something else to know about the paradox world, about uh, Europa Universalis, th- their world, and um, the Hearts of Iron world, Hearts of Iron, which focuses on 1936 to a little bit later, 48, 56, depending on the add-ons, Euro- Europa Universalis starting in 14, or uh, I guess four starts in 1444. I'm not sure how far it goes, maybe 1800 or something. Um,
1: but 1830, I think.
0: 1830, OK. It, and, and this is just really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the type of argument you're making about how you're being oriented to history. It starts in Europe, even though you can pick any country to play in the world or any civilization.
1: Right. And this is always, I was kind of torn. To some degree, what I'm presenting is, is very laudatory of the game, the things it does right. To some degrees, it's a critique in the things that I think that where it stumbles. I think I began by noting, I extend an extraordinary amount of grace to any game that will let you play a country that is a victim of imperialism. If you want to play Europa Universalis IV as a Native American tribe trying to figure out how to cope with the sudden arrival of European forces, you can do that. The game lets you. Um, I will note that the nearest competitor for this, Empire Total War, does not allow you to do that. Uh, Native Americans aren't playable. They're only computer-controlled enemies. Indeed, in Empire Total War, almost none of the non-European powers are playable. But in Paradox's design philosophy, every state on the map is playable in all of these games, from the major powerful empires that are going to do tremendous things to shape the world, to states that are almost certain to cease to exist within a few years of game start. Uh, famously for EU4, which starts in in 1444, you can play as the Byzantine Empire, which will of course famously stop existing in 1453. And the, the like the Ottomans are coming, there's very little you can do. Of course, players then play the Byzantine Empire to show off how good they are with the game that they can survive in these difficult circumstances. I may have done this too, but this is the this is the thing in all of these games. And so, on the one hand, I extend sort of a tremendous amount of grace for that decision because few games let you play as the weak power the endangered power, the non-European power on the business end of European imperialism, or any kind of imperialism. You can also pick states that you know awkwardly border the Ming dynasty and be on the business end of Chinese imperialism. Pick states that border the Aztecs and be on the business end of Aztec imperialism. On the flip side, the game is called Europa Universalis, and there are elements of its design that really harken to this Eurocentric view of of history for this period. And in some ways, you could argue that that's justified. This is a period of rising European power historically. And in other ways, it feels like a stumble. And so you can condition a player in a video game in all kinds of subtle ways. Europa Universalis does two of these things. First, when when you first start the game and you have to pick a country to play as, though the whole globe is playable, The map naturally zooms in and frames Europe in that very traditional Europe and the Mediterranean map, kind of cuts off the Ottoman Empire. And then at the bottom of the screen, blocking out North Africa conveniently, um, at the bottom of the screen, there are a series of countries' uh, flags. And these are recommended countries to play. And they are all European powers of one sort or another, usually. I will say the Paradox guys tend to switch up what countries are in that block. And occasionally you'll have a couple that are outside of Europe. And these are presented as sort of, if you're a beginner, if you don't know the game very well, these are some interesting places to play, really presenting the European experience as the normal one. and Other experiences as divergent from that. I think in many ways this is, if you look at the Europa Universalis series as a whole, um, though I, I played three and four, I never played two. But if you look at the series as a whole, this reaches back to its roots, that its roots were a game about European expansion. And you can see the sort of heroic efforts of the Paradox developers trying to make this game progressively more global. And this becomes very obvious. Uh, Paradox's business model, they release one of these games only every few years. But then every year after they release it, they will release additional expansions for it that flesh out different parts of the game And if you look at Europa Universalis, nearly all of Europe's mechanics were in the game at release. And progressive expansions have mostly focused outside of Europe in an effort to flesh out those areas. I think the most recent expansion was focused on nomadic peoples and Southeast Asia. And so you can see that trend, that effort to push their games to be more global. And you can see that effort across all of their titles Crusader Kings 2, when it launched, featured a map that covered Europe and the Near East. Um, Crusader Kings 3's map makes it all the way to the edge of China um, and far further south in Africa. And you can see that as they're already talking about Victoria. Victoria 2 is their game covering the Industrial Revolution. Already talking about Victoria 3, it's clear that they want this to be a much more global game experience, and they're trying to sort of move away. But the vestiges of that design and what I sometimes call the view from Sweden paradox as a Swedish developer, um, the view from Sweden still occasionally comes through. Still, I think they bat much better than par.
0: One of the things that I I found very interesting about your posts on Europa Universalis IV was how you talk about the type of assumptions one ends up making as a student the observable assumptions about history that are kind of coded into the game beyond the sort of Western perspective, just how a person is encouraged to think about history and and how people are are or are not uh, encouraged to view history as contingent in any way, shape, or form.
1: Right, and this goes to the power of simulation as a persuasive mechanism. You can tell someone how something works, and they may or may not believe you, but if you can put someone in a situation where they are seeing the process simulated before them, it has a persuasive impact that is much stronger. And all the paradox games are historical simulations, or at least they are trying to be. And so they have that inherent power. I think you see this most clearly in the way that Europe Universalis treats its diplomacy model, its war and diplomacy model, we should say, because through a series of programming assumptions about how these things work, the developers have actually managed to neatly reproduce a political science thought experiment, uh, mostly associated with political scientist Kenneth Waltz. And so the the, the basic, just to cover briefly what's going on here, um, the basic assumption for most states in EU4, international diplomacy is a game with no rules. Uh, You make agreements, you can break your agreements, You can go to war pretty freely. And in this environment where international relations is a world with no rules, you can't count on any of your allies to ensure your safety in the long term. Uh, When you have war declared upon you, all of your allies get a pop-up that asks them if they want to honor their alliance or bail on you. And so if they think you're going to lose the war, they'll bail. They're not going down with the ship with you. This is too serious. For that kind of thing. And so you're in a position where only you can guarantee your own security. And so you have to, okay, if I'm going to guarantee my own security, I need to be as powerful as possible. I need to to develop military power in as great a degree as I can. Okay, how do I develop military power? Well, I'm dealing with an agrarian economy. So the basic resource here is land. I can make capital investments in my own land. I build the irrigation. I can, And the game has systems for this. But these are slower, more expensive, and less impactful than just getting more land. But of course, the only way to get more land is to take it from someone else. So the only way you can render yourself secure against your enemies is by victimizing states that are weaker and smaller than you, taking their land and raising military forces to protect you against the other guy. And the other guy is doing the same thing. And then this creates a second order process. Because you're like, I am going to attempt to expand to ensure my security. My rival, who isn't that much bigger than me, I know he's going to attempt to expand too. So if I don't expand, even though maybe he's not a threat to me today, tomorrow he will have expanded and then he will be a threat to me. So I need to expand proactively. I need to engage in proactive aggression in order to defend myself. And so I am going to expand. I am going to militarize my society as much as possible. The social institutions I'm going to develop are gonna be directed towards military force because it is the only way for me to survive. And so you get this environment of dog eat dog, brutal red in tooth and claw, Thomas Hobbes-style competition that develops. And the game simulates this beautifully. And they're not completely out in left field. This is a theory. The fancy term for it is neorealist political theory. And the term for this particular setup of states is is, is a, a state of interstate anarchy. It produces convergence. Everyone becomes alike with each other in militarism. And it produces what's called the security dilemma that everything you do to render yourself more secure renders your neighbors less secure. So they're going to do the same things to increase their security. And that creates this dog-eat-dog competition, um, this really brutal competition. And Europa Universalis, it doesn't make you do this. There's no point where the game stops and says, you should conquer your neighbors. It doesn't do any of that. Europa Universalis doesn't say, would you like to do an imperialism today? It just sets up these systems. And then you realize that to survive, you have to be the villain. You have to be the biggest villain. The biggest villain is the one that lives. And you can then import that, right? That model, because this game covers the initial and important phase of European imperialism, it becomes an explanatory model for European imperialism. That the player walks away oh, I now understand why Spain was rampaging across the new world, because when I got to that point in the game, I was looking at France, and France had begun reincorporating its constituent elements. The French state is forming a thing that happened in this period, and I'm sitting here looking at their armies and wealth and manpower and going, oh my God, how do I stop that? And then I discovered the new world and all of its wealth and like deliverance, like manna from the heavens. Here are all of these weak states that I can beat them up and steal their lunch money and use their lunch money to fight the French or the Germans or the English or the Italians. And so competition within Europe begins to explain expansion outside of Europe. It at least explains the motives. The good news here is that paradox is proceeding along what is a recognized historical theory for how this stuff works. On the flip side, of course, having picked a theory, students may be surprised to find out this is not the only answer we have to this question. Of course, there are all sorts of ways where you can present, well, this kind of imperial activity was culturally valued in Europe. Um, It was tied up with with the political values of the military aristocracy that the Middle Ages had produced. It was tied up with the religious values of the Christian church and the importance of evangelism and spreading the faith. It was tied up with the economic incentives of individuals who often trespassed their society's morals to do this. I'm a little bit sad that he doesn't get more of a billing in this game, but for instance, Bartholomew de las Casas writes at some length about, this is a, uh, a Catholic priest, and how horrified he was by Spanish behavior in the new world. Um, how much it, was, it, it seemed to him as terribly unchristian, how awfully they were treating the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And to a degree, while European Universalis is extremely successful at presenting a neo-realist vision That means deprioritizing these other visions. To be fair, perhaps it's a different sort of game that might prioritize those other visions. Uh, I would love to see in the RPG, the role-playing game genre, more of an effort to deal with these. I suppose there was recently, I haven't played it, Greedfall uh, that supposedly attempted to tackle these topics, though as I understand, not not great. Uh, It didn't come off quite so well. And the Assassin's Creed games have occasionally touched on these, often very ham-fistedly, uh, quite frankly. But so it's a different, sort of, a different sort of emphasis. But that power of simulation uh, leads people to come away. It's very convincing. You come away from a game of Europe Universalis thinking, you know, I understand European imperialism. Now, maybe you do, maybe you don't.
0: <laughs> you understand an imperative to behave imperialistically or uh, aggressively toward one, one's neighbors when they're are three types of resources, uh, administrative, diplomatic, and military that one that regenerate repeatedly and one can use, must yes. use often, uh, oftentimes to develop yes. oneself. And then that's it's, it, you, you can't say, okay, well, I'm actually not gonna do any administrative stuff. Let's just see how this cooks out if it's all diplomatic and military or get rid of the diplomacy. Right. We're putting that all in military. We're not doing any diplomacy whatsoever. We don't have ambassadors or diplomats. Let's see how that works.
1: I, and I will say, to one degree, there's a real credit to the sort of universalizing aspect where EU4 has to represent every state everywhere in the world, and in, even some peoples that were not in states, with the same set of mechanics, which is that at the very least, it actually robs Europe of some of its exceptionalism. It takes away this explanation, oh, the Europeans were uniquely aggressive, uh, which is something I think you will not find many global historians covering this period arguing. There are all sorts of petty empires. When the Spanish showed up in Mesoamerica, they did not find a lot of peaceful states. They found a very successful, very violent tributary empire in the Aztecs. You know, The Aztecs were not nice people. You know, In this sense, every state has the same tools, and they're all pushed towards the same sets of interactions. Um, and the game has a different set of mechanics we can talk about in a second to try and push Europe towards victory in these interactions. But on the other hand, right, that wall's off making a decision to be different. If you want to to look at this brutal competition and try and find a way out, the game does not have systems for you. There are two odd areas of the game, physical geographic locations where this is less true, Um, the Holy Roman Empire and the orbit of, of the Ming Dynasty where the pressures of interstate competition are restrained by what I'd argue appears at first to be systems of international law. But when you just scratch the surface, it's revealed to be a system of hegemony. What's happened is a great power has emerged and has dominated its neighborhood and has set the rules in ways that favor itself, whether that great power is the Ming dynasty or Austria. And that, again, is also an argument. Kenneth Waltz flatly states when he lays out Uh, Waltz argues there are essentially four international systems that you can have that have ever existed. There is anarchy. There is balance of power. There is hegemony. And he says there is international law. And he immediately follows with a system that has never worked or been successfully established. International law in the neorealist view is something we might be able to do in the future, but we have never successfully pulled it off. And so you're left with anarchy. And then balance of power is just when the anarchy is reduced to a single digit number of states, uh, which does reduce the total amount of conflict. And then hegemony is when one state wins the anarchy. EU4 embraces this model. Uh, to the degree that you believe that neorealism explains a lot, you will like this simulation. To the degree that you think neorealism doesn't explain a lot, you won't. I will give the paradox folks credit. EU4 is set in the period that is, makes the strongest case for a neorealist view of foreign policy. The game, for instance, set before this um, is Crusader Kings, set in the Middle Ages. And the role of culture, norms, and religion in Crusader Kings is much stronger, is much stronger. And so there are breaks and checks on that neorealist balance where you can see something of a more normative imagination of politics. And I hope we get a chance to talk about this. The game that comes after in Victoria 2 examines some of the, the consequences of that neorealist uh, thinking in a way that essentially looks at the system of EU4 and says, ah, yes, but the system is bad.
0: Let's talk about it. Let's talk about Victoria 2 now. Again, I haven't ever played it, so I can't really speak intelligently about it, nor have I played EU4 very effectively. I've, I've mostly ended up getting victimized by my, my larger neighbors, but it is a but very But I think fun... that's,
1: that's some of the best experience of EU4 from the historical learning Experiences the point at which you just get stomped by somebody and that makes you th- it makes you think um so uh, background um victoria 2 and the upcoming victoria 3 which i think is going to release sometime uh did next year or never maybe covers the period immediately after it starts in the 1830s and it runs to the 1930s it is essentially about the, the sort of main three threads i would argue through the game are the industrial revolution particularly in europe the what we would call the new imperialism, the wave of imperialism in the 1800s, like the scramble for Africa. And then finally, World War I, which almost looms as the end boss of the game. The mechanics are set up in complex ways to make sure World War I happens. And then if you choose to play as the United States, I don't know why you would, it's terribly boring. The American Civil War is the fourth plank of the game. Um, but playing the United States in, in Victoria 2 or in Hearts of Iron is playing on easy mode, which is true. The United States is history on easy mode, that's fair at least after, after the revolution. What's really interesting is that Victoria 2, again, here, I think, I think the neo realist system in EU4 was intentional. I think the system that Victoria 2 sets up and that it really looks like Victoria 3 will set up is unintentional and therefore even more interesting. So you have the Industrial Revolution, which is simulated in the game. These technologies emerge. You build factories. You educate your workforce, all of this stuff. And productivity rises. Productivity shoots way up your country will be orders of magnitude more productive per land area or per population at the end of the game than it was at the start. And that has a really interesting implication on that dog-eat-dog balance. In the early game, most of your wealth is still coming from land, and the farmer pops that work that land, and so it makes sense to expand. But as you get further and further on, more more of your wealth comes from factories. You can build basically as many factories in one place as you want. You're not going to run out of space for them. The main limit here is both profitability and technology, but is population. How many workers can you cram into your factories? How many people do you have to work these factories? And those factories are producing your guns and uniforms that you're using for your armies. This is actually simulated. Your troops need equipment. That is the expense of paying them. So you need these factories for that. And you need your pops for your factories. And then Victoria does one more thing, which is that it makes an effort to simulate every adult male human on the planet Earth. Irritatingly, it does not simulate children or women, something that Victoria 3, we are told, will fix. Um, The idea here, I think, is meant to be that pops are meant to represent households. But in any event, the game is keeping track of, and you begin with historically accurate population numbers, and it keeps track of everybody. Now, in EU4, when you stock up your armies, you have a resource called manpower. It's a pool, and it fills up over time. And if troops die in battle, they're removed from your manpower pool, but it's like a bucket with a constant stream into it. It just fills up again. In Victoria too, when troops die in battle, they're subtracted from the underlying pop that supplied that unit. Arm, they could have children, that could become educated, they could help you research technologies, they could do anything else. It's gone forever. All of the children pops, the little kitty pops from population growth that could have made, they don't exist. If you have a devastating war, you're France in World War I, you get a whole generation of your young men killed, that generation is gone with implications for your productivity. And the game, because it's oriented around POPs, it really wants you to think about individual POPs have militancy. How much do they like the situation that's going on? They have consciousness. How Where are they of the political realities around them? And so suddenly, you're actually really concerned not just about state power and expanding state security, but am I providing a good quality of life for my people to keep them happy? so they don't overthrow me. The result of all of these pressures is that you get to a point, it's brilliant, the way to win World War I in Victoria II is to not fight World War I. Nothing you could possibly gain in World War I, no amount of land, no colonies that you can strip off of other imperial powers, no resources you can get access to will be worth the mountain of dead pops it will take to get it. And that is just one, such a remarkable critique of EU4, (laughs) of the warmongering you were doing in EU4. Paradox turns your head to look at that and think at all the people that died. All those little floating red numbers above your arms that were casualties, those were fathers and sons and brothers. Don't you feel like an asshole now? Because it's the mechanics push you to care about them. And at the same time, it's watching a technological development that really happened. Um, Azar Gott discusses this in his book, War and Human Civilization, that the Industrial Revolution really does change a lot. That historically speaking, prior to the Industrial Revolution, war, in a sense for the survivors, paid. Victorious war was a way that societies got richer because land was the primary thing of value. With the Industrial Revolution, human capital and infrastructure become the primary things of value. Well, war just destroys both of those things. Those factories get bombed and those people get shot and bayoneted. War is suddenly destroying the resources you get. It's destroying the productive basis of your society. And so war no longer pays. War is no longer a good way to increase that. And all one needs to do is look at Europe in the two world wars. The best country to be in World War I and World War II was the United States because the World War I and World War II did not happen here. Or Spain. Yes, also an option, although they were having their own Spanish Civil War in the middle there and some Franco fun. But yeah, and so it's wonderful to see that historical theory marched out in a game that forces you, and most players coming to that game with their EU4 expectations will charge gleefully into World War I and ruin their country just like the political decision makers did, because this is also a point that Azar Ghat makes, that he points out, war we have always had with us. Azar Ghat uh, argues, I think, persuasively, human beings have been waging war since deep into prehistory. Military mortality, violent mortality, was probably significantly high enough in the deep depths of prehistory that human beings are evolved for war. And we're evolved in the sense that those of us that are the most aggressive, the most bellicose, the most warlike, those are the humans that passed on their genes to us. And then we started building complex societies, and we built those complex societies for war. And the societies that did war the best thrived, and the ones that didn't got absorbed by them. I study the Romans, who is just the example of this. The Romans are super militaristic, They conquer the whole Mediterranean. And by the time they're gone, the whole Mediterranean is culturally Roman. And so those militaristic values have spread. And what Azargat says is the cost benefit changes with the Industrial Revolution. But our cultural, social, and biological evolution doesn't move that fast. We still have societies that are oriented towards war making we still have brains that are oriented towards war making. We still have culture that is oriented towards war making, all of our games and movies and so on. And now you take us, we are biological war machines, and technology has handed us the power to destroy ourselves. And Gott ends his book with this very sort of morose note. Are we going to be able to, to or is the rational part of our brain going to be able to hold us back with the realization that war no longer pays? long enough for our our social and biological evolution to catch up, or is the part of our monkey brain that was always about war going to lead us to nuke ourselves into glowing dust before that realization catches up? Obviously, you don't get all the way to the nuclear weapons, but Victoria just does a wonderful job of of, of demonstrating that theory. And since it demonstrates the theory unintentionally, it's all the more powerful as a sort of persuasive tool for showing it off.
0: I'm wondering, and this is partly a way to transition to the last question or or, or discussion point I I, I want to explore with you. I realize that we're running a little bit long but I think it's useful enough to to continue the talk. Um, How does uh, Victoria II, does it treat the colonies that are inherited as a legacy of the land grab that preceded it? or does, is there not sort of much thought put into that? Because I, I guess what I'm saying here is that like if the game is incentivizing a different type of build than uh, a land expansion build because the costs are so prohibitive, where do the colonies factor into that and how, and how then are the wars that empires fight to hold on to colonies justified or expl- explained?
1: This is something that I hope will get a little bit better developed in in Victoria three. Legacy colonies are their 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 provinces are differently typed. So you know, British control in India, they're colonial provinces. You can't build factories in them. They're a little less productive, and the people there aren't of your your culture, and so they tend to have nationalism. Um, especially as the game goes on, they'll have national aspirations, and they'll begin to pressure and you do kind of have a choice in the game, you can uh, attempt to continue being your colonial power, you can just put that nationalism down. You can also take some steps to try and more fully incorporate these places, make them full members of your state. Um, That's not something a lot of imperial states did in many places. The French tried with very limited success in places like Algeria, It's not a button that I think most players would press. The game does not incentivize it. One thing I would really like to see, actually, I feel like this would have to be more in the Hearts of Iron, which looks later. I would love to see Hearts of Iron extended maybe 10, 15, 20 years and really grapple with decolonization and the wars of decolonization and the pressures of nationalism. But but Victoria does touch on this, not as strongly as I would like, but it is in there. It is something that they're thinking about. And you can have a situation where, you know, you are the Netherlands and one of your problems is that the people of Java want to be free. And then you have to ask hard questions because that's where you get all of your rubber for your factories. And do you want them to be free? Do you want to try and incorporate them fully into your country? You're going to face political resistance for that.
0: That's something that I'm just realizing now talking to you, I think is always been sort of underplayed in games with the exception of, and this is something that even even the original Hearts of Iron, I think did a great job with because it's immediately clear to you with Hearts of Iron 1, which is in some ways, I think that the choices are a little bit more complex than Hearts of Iron 2. There are more sort of military choices you get with 2, but 1 itself mm-hmm. is uh, it's sort of Uh, Warhammer 40k second edition rules versus Warhammer 40k sixth edition rules. It's been oversimplified to the point where it's almost unplayable by sixth edition, but second edition has almost too much color in it. With Hearts of Iron one, it's all about rubber and oil. If you're Japan, if you play Japan or if you play Germany, you have to get you have to get to the the oil. You have to get to the rubber because otherwise your country is is untenable. The military is untenable. In the case of Germany, interestingly, if you're playing Hearts of Iron One and you don't get to the oil qu- quickly enough, um, you won't go to war with the Allies. The Russians will attack you. The, the USSR right. will, which which is another strange sort of historical choice that's made there. But the yeah, there's no, there's no opportunity to do to take sort of uh, to redeem Germany and just feel like well we're not going to do militarism. We're gonna we're going to be a good country instead. Um, Having said all of that, it, it, I mean, this is, this is kind of a windup for me to say, the reason to take a, a colony, I guess, if you're amoral or immoral, if you see, you know, the, the people who are there in that place as, as having, you know, no rights or not even being people, is that there's a ton of gold and silver and timber and rubber. I mean, like, that's a huge boost to a pre-industrial and then even an industrial economy It's interesting, and I I have noticed that the the way that you end up in a a game dealing with the sort of the problem of the colony, which is that it can't be as productive as the main country or where the main country ceases to be the main country in a certain way. So you end up undervaluing the very thing that makes the colony worthwhile to the main country in the first place, which is the extraordinary wealth of resources you get mostly free.
1: I do think it's interesting in um, Hearts of Iron IV, it is possible to sort of take Germany on a, a different course. And if you make friends with the allies, you can at last trade for that oil. And because if you're not at war with the allies, then the British aren't blockading you. And so you can actually engage in naval trade and you can trade for that oil. Of course, it it mattered a lot. You want to talk about the role of ideology, which you know Hearts of Iron IV you know, it does try to simulate. It mattered a lot that the various fascist movements of the 1930s, one of their core ideological tenets was autarky, that the state should be resource independent, which you can really only be a truly resource independent state by dominating other people. One could, I think, make the very convincing argument that part of what we see in the Second World War is a clash between the allies, and particularly the allies not including the Soviet Union, favoring an orientation much more associated with trade. Obviously, all, they all have co- all the allies have colonies, too. So it's not that they're anti-imperialist in any sense. And we should note, nor was the Soviet Union, um, whatever the tankies on Twitter say. Um, the Soviet Union was an empire. But it's a sort of an economic system based on trade for the allies versus an economic system based on autarky for the Axis powers. And you can just look at the production statistics, there's no question which system works better. The United States is comically outproducing the entire Axis Alliance in terms of resources by the end of, by the, end of the war. And indeed, of course, so is the Soviet Union is benefiting. You know, The United States has relatively few weapon systems to the Soviet Union, although not none. But we send thousands of train cars and engines and fuel and so on to the Soviet Union. Um, You know, very intentionally freeing up their economy and their workforce to do nothing but fight. And that was an intentional strategy. Um, And so you can see this sort of this trade strategy on one hand versus the autarky imperialism strategy on the other hand. And you can start to see the beginnings of, again, Gott's argument, the changes in technology. It is now better to trade with your neighbors than conquer them.
0: Fascinating. So the the last gear shift I wanted to do, and uh, we won't talk about this too long, because we are running a bit long on time, although I I could easily talk another couple hours about this, it's fascinating, is, and to to rewind a little bit to EU4, you know, the idea of a country that decided to sacrifice administrative or diplomatic or military power, Uh, the recent example of Afghanistan, a country that apparently never had any administrative power to begin with. It's like, here's here's a country with a central government that is a group of people who are calling themselves a central government for the purposes of people writing about Afghanistan, having a central government, but in meaningful ways outside of Kabul in some of the cities, not all of the cities, some of the cities, no central government existed, barely any government existed. Uh, I was just hoping to get your thoughts about, about having seen What what's happened in Afghanistan recently, since we're talking about history and the fall of countries.
1: And certainly the incapacity of the Kabul government so dramatically shown, a situation where I sometimes refer to these as a clarifying spasm of violence, where suddenly the situation that was unclear a minute ago, you're like, oh, the Kabul government didn't have control over anything. And obviously, with very tragic, tragic results, I mean, I think, I think people want to think clearly about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not some ungovernable country. I think there is this idea, right? It goes to the graveyard of empires, which is presented as this ancient idea when it, it doesn't much predate our military intervention in Afghanistan. And in part, it, it survives. You get people will present the graveyard of empires, and it's Alexander, the British, the Soviets, and us. And you can't help but notice that we've jumped from 323 BC to the 1800s.
0: And also, of those empires, only the USSR was Collapsed, tied yes. to the Afghanistan at all. So I guess it's a graveyard right. with one
1: gravestone. Right. It's a graveyard with, with one gravestone. And, uh, of course, I, as an ancient historian, I have to point out, Alexander wasn't defeated in Afghanistan at all. Uh, he set up the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. It survives to 100 BC. It does fine. Alexander won. Alexander conquered Afghanistan just fine. Uh, You know, the British didn't conquer Afghanistan, but they did achieve their primary strategic objective, which was keeping the Russians from doing so. Obviously, I think it's fair to say that U.S. policy in Afghanistan has failed. But is the U.S., whatever we want to call this, um, going to collapse because of it? No. But the other idea there is that Afghanistan is some sort of ungovernable place. And that's really supported by ignoring the intervening 2,000 years by that, where Afghanistan is part of several large empires. It's conquered successfully by the Mongols. But it's also the seat of large empires, often large, complex empires. Afghanistan is not a land without civilization. Um, Afghanistan has had great cities and great wealth in the past. And so this isn't some ungovernable place. I will say that the United States sought to impose a form of government and a system of government that seems to have been uniquely poorly suited for the society that Afghanistan had, that you have a country that is very diverse. It has lots of different ethnic groups, some of them with long-standing tensions, uh, different languages, lots of very difficult terrain, lots of micro regions. And the decision was made that the best form of government for this was a highly centralized presidential republic. It's really baffling because the United States is a country with lots of different little ethnic groups and religions. And we responded with our own structure, with a highly federal structure that devolves lots of powers to localities. And for some reason, we decided not to do this in Afghanistan, which I just find extraordinarily puzzling.
0: It's possible, I think, I, I don't have much evidence for this. It's possible that this is because the only recent experience that most Afghans between the ages of 40 and 70 had with any type of Western government was in fact a some some type of centralized bureaucracy, which is to say the USSR. Of course, prior to that, it had been, um, right. and, and there were a lot of those people that you encountered that I encountered when I was over there in significant positions of leadership, both at the local level, the town level, the city level, and in the military as well—generals, colonels, that type of thing. So it could be that that was something that was sort of I think so negotiated, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I think I think this is right. You know, if you get into the history of Afghanistan, one of the problems that Afghanistan has faced since the 90s to today is the legacy of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the, the Soviet Union, of course, it had its ideology an even more totalizing ideology than ours. And the Soviets quite intentionally tried to rip out the political institutions of Afghanistan from the roots abolish those tribal councils, kill those tribal leaders. This is part of what allowed the Taliban to come to power in the first place, was that the traditional strong had been intentionally eradicated to try to make way for this Western-style ultra-centralized government, which is probably not, for now, the right fit. Um, and so I think that this is part of why. And then we, of course, did it again for some reason. Uh, mostly, we did it out of out of hubris. I think this is part of the part of the issue, but it's it's not that Afghanistan is ungovernable; it's that we came to it with a a very bad system that we were convinced would work. Because I mean, we're so very smart and good at this, right?
0: It was never clear to me why we were doing things. I don't even know if it was intentional. I don't know if anybody said, "What what are we going to do here?" I think maybe people treated it more like a video game and said, this is how this is how it's going to be. This is how the game gets played. It'd be very interesting to see uh, maybe there's a, you know, a a PhD in it for some uh, enterprising undergrad to see the types of assumptions that the people in power at the time were making when they were saying, Afghanistan, this is, this is what your government is going to look like, or how would you like your government to look like with these limited options. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's such a shame, and I'm I'm really I'm glad to hear you say to say that, and I think it can't be said uh, it can't be said too much that the Afghans in, have their own agency, the the Afghan people, some of whom don't even think of themselves as Afghan people, but many of them do. The idea of an Afghanistan is sensible. They're not just like us, but they're extraordinarily similar to us. You know, when we talk about the Afghan military, some people say the Afghan military fight, you know, they're cowardly. They're a bad military. Well, maybe in the aggregate, but if if you go on a patrol with a platoon of Afghan police or soldiers, most of them will be carrying weapons and looking not to be killed and looking to shoot their opponents. And actually, many of them are quite brave. And they come from a culture, this is something they're aware of, they come from a culture that does prize martial prowess and bravery. Of course, not every Afghan is a warrior uh, in the same way that not every American is a Navy SEAL. But one of the things that's sort of the hardest to see online, and I think this also gets back to what you were talking about earlier about assumptions that you see people making, authors making when it comes to something like Game of Thrones, is like there's so much very like lukewarm hogwash out there about other countries and other peoples in history. and history. And on the one hand, you think to yourself, well, at least they know at least they care about Afghanistan, or at least they care about medieval history. Who cares if they you know can't tell the difference between a a cannon and a trebuchet or they think a trebuchet is sort of like behaves like a wooden cannon or something like it's it's more important <laughs> that they that they're even interrogating these things to begin with that they're showing up and paying money for it. but it does it does drive me a little bit nuts with Afghanistan where we we got to the end of it and it felt like, All of the lessons we've learned were bad lessons and sort of weird racist lessons. And none of the good, useful lessons that we could have learned, you know, were were, that are just right there for the taking. What business do we have imposing anything on the Afghans structurally? You know that we're going to do this in another 20 to 30 years. You know, I don't Um, know where it'll be, but we're going to.
1: It could end up being in Afghanistan again.
0: I wouldn't wouldn't rule it out. Afghanistan, Iran, Venezuela. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last thought before before I let you go, I've uh, we've we've talked for uh, over an hour, but I think the the, the yeah. audience ought to really like this. I, I've certainly enjoyed the talk. Is I'm just wondering if there are any, if in critiquing shows and video games, if there's a video game or uh, a, out there that hasn't been made yet that you'd like to see made. Uh, or if there's a movie or, or television show out there that you'd, you'd like to see made that tackles a particular period of history in a way that you think is just sort of, you know, fr- from a perspective or framework that hasn't really been done yet.
1: The one thing that comes to my mind, sort of near and dear to my heart, uh, I don't know how many people would play this. I, I would love to see a, a video game actually tackle pre-modern small farmer subsistence strategies. There are a lot of farming in the Sardu Valley and Harvest Moon and things, but put those in a situation of you know low productivity, subsistence farmers, uh, the big man on the hill has you in debt, and those sorts of strategies. Uh, I discussed briefly on the blog at one point, the city builder banished, which I thought at least touched on some of the traps that can exist in kind of low productivity societies. But it's important to remember that for for most of human history, that is from the advent of writing circa 3000 BC to now, for most of human history, the overwhelmingly vast majority of humans, 90 plus percent, were farmers and were subsistence farmers, small farmers on small farms. And, And I really mean, I mean, small farms, like the average Roman family farm is six acres thereabouts, right? It's tiny compared to modern farms. They're farming very intensively. Productivity is very low. I actually have a whole series on farming entitled How Did They Make It, colon, bread, if people want to read through some of these dynamics. But it'd be really interesting to see a game dive in and try to simulate those, those dynamics and offer a sort of window on the way most people live. You do occasionally get games that try to get you on the ground level of the past. The one that's popping to mind is the combat RPG Kingdom Come Deliverance although, which is set in the Middle Ages in Bohemia. It's always very quick, though, to give you a sword and make you go fight things. But there are moments of the sort of realia of walking down a medieval street, seeing a brightly painted church, and I'm just like, oh, they did that right. But a game that puts you down there and actually like, you are a peasant. Here is what it's like to be a peasant um, would, I think, be a fascinating experience. And it might, I would hope, leave the player convinced... I find that many of my students, they look at poor people in the past, and they assume that people in the past who were poor were also stupid. Didn't they understand all of these things that I know? But the people in the past were not stupid. They were just poor, and that's different. And then, in fact, to survive as a peasant on the subsistence line, in a society with no welfare, no social services of any kind, to survive and, and, in some cases, thrive, You had to be smart. You had to be strategic. You had to be a canny survivor. You had to not make mistakes. Making mistakes as a subsistence farmer, your whole family starves, everyone dies. You you were on the razor's edge. And I think that would be an interesting way to hopefully engage the empathy of the player, to actually think about these people as people and the kinds of lives that they have.
0: I'd like to see that too, either as a video game or as a board game. It seems like something that could be... Mm -hmm. Uh, you're given a plot of land and you know they're you and five players and then the, the person who's the big man on the hill as you put it, the, the game that you're playing against and you're just sort right. of like giving that thing resources it's taxing you uh, you're trying to get your, mar- your one of your daughters married to it you're trying to get one of your sons to fight for it but you
1: something. also yeah but you also rely on it because it bails you out when the harvest is bad and right. when you need extra work you can share crop on the big man's land. And so there is this both symbiotic and parasitic relationship between the little farmer and the big man. They need each other. The big man is exploiting the little farmer, but the little farmer needs some of the protection and resilience the big man can offer, which is why he doesn't tell the big man to just go pound sand, so to speak. And it would be really, again, it would be really interesting to see those dynamics. Yeah, as a board game, you could do it. You could do it as a computer game. It'd be really interesting as a multiplayer game of any kind. Um, And you could put, you could also then, you could put interesting pressures if you have a player playing as the big man, the interesting pressures because the big man is not being a jerk because he's a jerk. He's extracting resources and exploiting because he's trying to compete politically or raise military power in order to survive himself. You know, these are systems where no one is secure, no one feels safe.
0: Thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. Really appreciate it, really terrific. Um, I encourage anybody who, who's picked up a book of history, either about uh, a war or an ancient civilization, to read ACOOP. Also, if you like strategy games, and there's probably, that's mostly a bubble that's over, overlapping itself, a Venn diagram that's also a perfect, overlapping a perfect circle. Uh, but this is a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. we will have to do this again sometime soon. Thanks so much.
1: We will. Thank you for having me. And I apologize that uh, that brevity is not the soul of my wit when it comes to these long answers. But thank you. It's been great.